Welcome to When Did You Know? This week I'm joined by Ben Peachy. Ben is a writer, speaker, content creator, LGBT plus advocate and soon to be author. Um, they've worked with major brands such as Amazon Prime, um, Oliver Bonus, Matalan and many more. And they've written for Cosmopolitan, Women's Health, The Guardian and many more again. So welcome, Ben. Hello. Oh, thank you so much. What, what a very, very nice introduction. I'm always um, humbled by success. So I was just sat there just like smiling, being like, yeah, that's me. I've done those things. But yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Awesome. And we're, I'm definitely going to be asking you some questions about your book later on, <laughs> because I'm very interested in it. So we'll, we'll come back okay. to that. Um, but as most people know, who've listened to the first um, season, each episode starts with the same three questions. Let's begin. So first off, how do you identify? So I identify under the gorgeous trans umbrella, I am non-binary, which really means my gender identity has no classification. It has no uh, limits or rules. And I was thinking about this, and I guess most people, when they've answered this question, have gone on to talk about sexuality. And I'm in this really interesting phase where I don't know. I, I don't have an answer for you. Sort of when I was younger, I was, I, I was definitely told by peers that I was gay. I was told, you know, that's who I was. But I'm non-binary. So that doesn't really, it doesn't really fit for me right now. So I'm in a, I'm in a period of, I'm not really quite sure where my sexuality fits with my gender identity. And also the crossover of my gender identity means that sexuality is something that is taken off me. It's it's handed back to me in terms of fetish or fitting very specific ideals. So it's not something I actually feel I have ownership of. So in terms of my sexuality, I don't know. <laughs> That's it. But also, and I know we'll, we will probably come back to this anyway, but gender identity and sexuality sexual orientation are two very different things but they're often kind of mm -hmm. seen as interchangeable somehow and I think that's a misconception in wider society mm -hmm. that we need to challenge but we'll definitely come back to that um so when did you come out it's one of those um tragic parts of my life and I, I don't like to dwell on things like this but it is part of my origin story is that I never really had a chance to come out. Um, I certainly remember around the age of 10, it, every time I walked into a room or went near different children at school, it was like everyone stopped talking. Like I was the butt of this joke that I had no, I had no understanding of. And then when I moved on to, to secondary school at 11, 12, that's when I was told, you know, you're gay, you're different, you're, you're the, the, the other in the room and you know every school has that one kid that is bullied by everyone exclusively even the other kids that are slightly bullied bully that kid that was me I was that person and that was you know realistically from 10 to 16 17 that was my school experience my difference my otherness was fed back to me as a as a problem so there were no conversations about coming out you know I didn't even get to have that dialogue or narrative with my parents because the bullying got so bad at school that my parents had to get involved and then they were sort of told about these themes and topics without me having any control of the narrative so pretty much since I was 10 I've been under the LGBTQIA plus spectrum without having any control of that narrative so um yeah I never really came out Thank you. Um, and yeah, there's lots in there that I, I think um, would be really important to talk about. And 
finally, the question, the point of the podcast, when did you know? When did I know? Yeah. <laughs> I remember my first day of school. Um, school's obviously one of these things that are a massive part of who we are as people because, you know, those growing up years are really, really tricky. And I was an incredibly, um, incredibly bad student at school. I really, really hated school. And my first day, I didn't go in until after lunch because no one could peel me off my mum. It just wouldn't happen. So like everything had started before I got there and they managed to get me in after lunch. And the room just went silent. I could see everyone in their groups and I have this searing memory of it like it was yesterday. I knew there was no place for me. I knew there was nowhere for me in those groups in, of, of what children are expected to do as normal. That's when I knew there was a difference in my life. That's when I knew that I wasn't gonna fit in and stuff was gonna be tricky. Now, did I know that that was sexuality or gender? No, no. I just knew it was a social difference. And realistically, since then, I felt very on my own with everything because I just don't fit in. And like that's manifested in to people thinking of me as difficult or um, definitely at school a loner. People didn't didn't want to get involved. So yeah, I've known forever. I've known since I could think about it. But I guess in terms of language, I'd, I'd say realistically, I've known exactly who I am and what I want to do with that since I was about 21. That's realistically, that was sort of like, it's been present in my head, but then I had the language at 21 to be like, this is who I am this is what I'm going to do with it. Isn't that fun? So I guess I've had to cram all of all of the, the development of myself in the last five years. <laughs> and so when did you first hear the phrase like non-binary and where did you hear it? I guess because it's definitely, I'm trying to think of when I was growing up and it absolutely wasn't a phrase yeah. ever heard. I mean, to be fair, none, none of the LGBT plus umbrella was ever heard at school anyway for me. But it yeah. definitely feels like there's starting to become more of an awareness over the last five, six years, particularly over the last couple of years around non-binary yeah. and genderqueer identities. So when did you first hear it and and how did it I, feel to kind of hear something that resonated with you? Yeah, I, um, of all places, heard of it in a lecture at university. So I have a fashion degree and at the time is a communication degree. So at the time, gender was very much a topic that was being discussed and it, it was a concept that was brought up. And I, I remember just being like, looking around the room, being like, that's me, That that's me. Like I was on my own in a room full of people, fully processing in the middle of a lecture being like, oh my God, that is exactly who I am. That's how I feel. That's how I felt. That's the language I never knew I needed. And so I had that playing in my head for a couple of weeks. And then because I was at a fashion uni, there were other queer people. And I suddenly began to see fluidity of gender identity reflected back at me. And, you know, seeing those first, what I call pioneer queer people in my head, seeing them was very affirming for me and it, it really should have highlights that experience that I'm able to deliver now when I educate is that you know growing up if someone doesn't have a mirror to who they are how are they supposed to know who they are so it wasn't until I went to a creative uni and saw other queer people that I was able to grasp 
not only the feeling of, but the language of my own queerness. So it was very, very affirming and it fitted very nicely into the narrative of recreation that going away to university can do for you. You know, I do think getting a degree is great, but you know, it's graduate stuff's not that, that amazing, but the experience of leaving where you're from and almost not lying. I'm not, I'm not saying be a psychopath, but I'm just saying rephrase your past tell the truth you want to tell. So for the first time ever, I wasn't the loner. I wasn't the kid that everyone hated. I got to be in like control and it was like this diva moment. And then it sort of correlated with like really grasping my queerness. Yeah, it was very much like a a finding myself moment. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm <laughs> love days. <laughs> yes, oh, we do. You, yeah, I think... University is a time to reinvent yourself and reinvent the narrative mm. that has led your life up to that point, and that's really exciting. I think so. What when you started to realize who you were, and you could see yourself reflected in other people, and how then did you? Because you went to university, you could start this new narrative, but you still had your, I guess, your old self, your past life, still in the background. So how did? that crossover go how did it go with speaking to your um family your friends and especially things around non-binary because it it is still to so many people such um a difficult concept it shouldn't be but it is because it's still seen as a a newfangled thing even though it absolutely isn't (laughs) it's always existed but how was that um it's one of those things that you know I'm sat here as a very public individual very successful and my career is based on my own identity and my own experiences I don't really think I've fully had those conversations with family yet I don't I I don't know how to do it because you know it's it's difficult but you have to have compassions in these moments for yourself but also the people around you that hold on to the person they think they know. And when you, you know, you come home and you say, I I found myself, I've got this identity. I'm not going to say new identity, but it's almost like a, you've unlocked the next level, you know, like non-binary is like that, the end of the video, video game kind of moment. That's at very odds with what your family think about you and the information they hold dear about you. Because remember, no matter how difficult these relationships are, it's because of love. It's it's because of the love or the, the familial bond you hold. And you coming home and, you know, flipping the script on them and saying, you know, I don't want to be known by these pronouns. I want to be known by these. They feel very vulnerable and they feel very attacked. And that's why it can feel very heated. And you have to almost understand how much do you want to give away? Do you want to be completely true to yourself in every single moment of your life, but have no family, no support system? Or do you want to coexist and rub along and not really talk about the non-binary elephant in the room, but still have that family connection? That's kind of where I'm at. You know, I've been working through my own identity for, you know, five, six years and I in the public sphere I do that very very comfortably but my family don't engage with that work they're not really in that world because it's social media because it's websites it's not it it, it's just not for them so we haven't had that conversation I don't know if we will have that conversation I feel like and probably my sister totally gets it she's totally on board but that's because we grew up together she really really understands and knows me and we're of a similar age so she doesn't have 
necessarily any of the prejudices or or just you know a learned premise of what the world should and shouldn't be and I think my mum's definitely on board with it more and writing my book certainly helps because I'm incredibly dyslexic and she has proofread it so she's read every single word for me and I think she's really got it and she's really understood it have we had that conversation that hallmark moment no and then there's other family members that we just we don't talk about we don't (laughs) talk to each other you know we have that that's it's it's a it's a well-worn narrative in our community which transcends gender sexuality you know we just there's just some people you just don't get on with when you find who you are and you have to move on you have to you have to let go I guess but yeah coming to terms with it and I guess at uni it felt like I was living a double life like I'd, I'd pack to go home and I'd have to like think okay we need to dress for a, a blue belt conservative rural town, maybe leave the heels at home, maybe think about wearing less makeup. And then I'd come back to uni and I'd just like go mad again for it. It was really much like a double life. Whereas now I just do everything I want to do and just kind of ignore people's reactions. And that's fine for now. Yeah. And how empowering, like to how you worded that was so eloquent as well that, you know, bearing in mind that a lot of those reactions come from love and I think that you know maybe not all the time but I think most of the time that's true and it's but it's really hard to recognize that when you're in that difficult conversation and when you're in the heat at the moment um so I'm I think you know it wouldn't be a surprise to you or anyone listening that being bullied at school (laughs) when you fall under the LGBT plus um umbrella is it's a horrible rite of passage in a way. And it's something that year after year doesn't ever seem to be getting better. So what, and you, you do a lot of work around educating now, don't you? So um, I can't remember. I've forgotten the word. Consultancy. That's it. Sorry. Lost the yeah. word. <laughs> oh, um, so how is that kind of going into those spaces and trying to change things for you know, I can't I mean because my degree was in education so I did an education degree and a master's in education so I kind of get it from a, an academic point of view but I think yeah. I would really struggle still to go into those settings because for me even just walking into a school setting would bring back a lot of panic and anxiety and trauma so how is it doing that for you? I guess I mean obviously first and foremost I do most of it online, so I don't have to go to any of these spaces, um, which I think really, really helps because I know when you have to go somewhere and do something, you face a whole level of like anxiety that it's like you forget that you're professional. You feel you feel very nervous. So, and um, you know, I also work with predominantly brands, businesses, media agencies, companies. It's it's very very interesting because first and foremost. I don't have any any educational qualifications in terms of consultancy. I didn't do any of that. I have a communications degree and I've run my own website for five years. So a lot of it feels very much like, am I a fraud? Should I even be here? But, you know, there's a, there's a really big argument for lived experience kind of trumping um, written document education, that kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. And then there's the whole other point of it. Sometimes it feels like, 
you are a tick box moment. You've got the job because you represent something, which feels disgusting and is actually about 90% of how I'm given jobs. And it took a long time for me to be like, but I'm really talented and I've got something really important to say and it feels gross that I'm having to leverage my trauma for checks. But then someone spoke to me about this and I can't remember who and I wish I could, but it's about Trojan horsing the moment. You know, you've been given this opportunity because of how that company operates. Get in there and change their minds, blow their minds even. And if it takes your trauma, if it takes murky past sadness, why not monetize that, you know? I'm not grateful for the shit that has happened to me, the level of misery and torture that it put me through. Grateful is completely the wrong word. But if I was to do nothing with it, what a waste of my time. What a waste of years of my life. So now I can put the power that comes from that, which has taught me empathy, compassion. You know, I have an ability to just understand the pain and suffering because I experienced so much of it that was so completely out of my control and that's what DNI work is about because brands businesses education settings they just don't get it because they haven't been through it and it really does show the assumed levels that brands and businesses go to they think they're doing enough just to bring people in but the culture is just it's so it makes you realize that there's so much more work to be done at the minute everything I'm doing feels very surface level everything feels like this is a great place to start but what next but there is an emotional price to having to relive a lot of these moments again remembering recalling bullying recalling difficult moments and I don't know how long I can do that for you know, there is a price I pay with my own mental health. It's not, it's not the most enjoyable job. And I often say that, you know, I'm very grateful. I don't want to do this job. I wish I didn't have to. But if I didn't, who would fight for the next generation of kids? You know, I, and I'm sure you have similar experiences. I would never want to, sorry. I would never want to do my past again. It would kill me. And I I think it very nearly did. But I would kill to stop that happening to somebody else. And so this is why I do what I do. Do I want to do this forever? No, because obviously it's taking an emotional toll on me. But for now, I'm in the right place to do it. And I have the right tools to do it. And um, it's working all right for now. <laughs> Good. And thank you for sort of being so open about that I think um yeah it's funny as soon as we start talking about these things they I find sometimes the feelings just sort of grab you from nowhere and what the hell um yeah so thank you (laughs) um what what, um when you and I'm not going to ask you to kind of relive it and, and go through it at all at all but what was what was the impact like at the time I think being bullied through school at the level that LGBT young people are bullied. What was the impact? Um, Well, obviously I am of an age where we still had the effects of Thatcherism in schools. There was very much, um, it wasn't ever anything that felt very open to talk about. And even, you know, moving into high, um, 
to secondary school sort of around 2005, that still felt very prevalent. And, and when the bullying got really serious, where it was affecting mental health, but also it had gotten physical. And it, I remember really specifically being told that I had to go to counselling, that I had to get help. It was very much phrased like it was a me problem and there was nothing school could do about it. How I was being treated by peers was almost as if, well, this is how you've chosen to live. So there's nothing we can do. We can support you and tell you that you're mentally unwell. We can support you and give you leaflets and prepare you for that kind of stuff. But it, it felt like it was my problem and that I'd done it to myself and that I should be grateful for the like the dust that I'd been given of, of crumbs of help. And it was it, it really infuriating, but I didn't really know that until later when I was talking to my mum and she she was telling me that she'd tried and tried and tried and tried to get help and they just school would do nothing and it it got to the point where I didn't want to go to school and I wouldn't go to school and my mum was really actually very kind and I was ill in inverted commas a lot I had a lot of days off school until my before my GCSEs she kind of made a deal with me that I could be off as much as I wanted you know if I didn't want to go in for a couple of days um, you know, especially around things that made it difficult, things like sports day, PE, like I would try and avoid that if I could. Like I remember once um, I had to do rugby and I got knocked out, like a proper concussion. I still have the lump on my forehead. I couldn't do PE for the rest of the term because of medical reasons. It was the best thing that ever happened to me at 13. I loved it. <laughs> so I know, I know that my mum, you know, definitely had to support me a lot more that way. And obviously it means that I'm, I missed a lot of stuff. Um, like I have no geography knowledge because I probably never went to geography and, you know, stuff like that. It's just, it's odd how much I had to like hide. But then I did my GCSEs. I didn't miss a day for two years. And then I, I went on to A-levels and the crap kids left. And I was in sixth form and the teaching staff suddenly were like, oh yeah, we actually need to support you. And that's when the script really flipped for me and I felt like I owned that place and I felt really untouchable. And I remember dressing really wildly and no one really cared. And it didn't seem to matter anymore. It was like I did my time and then I was untouchable. But yeah, it was very, very intense. Mm. And what, what was the impact with your, because you kind of, I guess, were outed to your parents in the, like you said earlier on about the school kind of talking to them. How was that? Because I went, I was, you know, again, like a lot of LGBT people bullied horrendously at school, but I mm -hmm. never really went to my parents about it. And they knew bits of what happened, but I was yeah. so terrified of them finding out that it was just easier to suffer um, and teachers, it was also around the time of Section 28. So yeah. I'm, I'm older than you. And it kind of, so teachers were too afraid to do stuff and too afraid to speak to my parents. So it was like this unspoken silence. Yeah. And so how was it with, with your parents kind of, yeah, being told more or less? Um, I think it was really difficult for them. I definitely know that that's obviously 
not what they expected and I could see somehow behind their eyes a dream dying you know it's not the future they'd expected I do like I, I remember being having conversations that it was you know it was okay obviously just with my mum but that the life I had chosen was going to be very difficult as if it was almost like something that we could work through and maybe change now that was you know 10-15 years ago and it was uncomfortable. It's not something I'd want to do. And I, I wish dearly that I'd been in control of that narrative, but that was the hand I was dealt. You know, it's not something that I was able to control. And it meant by the time I was in my late teens, it wasn't really a taboo subject anymore. You know, I, I know a lot of people come out around that age and it still feels like huge life defining. And I didn't really have to do that. So I guess in a way I am grateful, but having the like that, queer plaster ripped off or pain yeah. discomfort it's just a lot to go through and you're like I was 12 13 I had no idea I had just no idea what any of it meant and I guess a lot of it I was just like okay I'll just go with that like I didn't get the chance to like fully absorb and understand it yeah it was just a whirlwind it was um it was a really tough childhood actually but I'm fine Good. Well, you've you've done very well, and uh, that was kind of what I wanted to ask next. Actually, I guess to move on to something a bit more positive. Um, mm. What, and this might be um, very difficult, so you don't have to name one thing. But what are you most proud of? Because you talked about how you've taken your story and you've taken your narrative, and as painful as it can be, it's also helped make a difference. So, what are you most proud of? I'm most proud of my resilience. Um, I. I'm very aware that as humans, we are incredible, incredible vessels of knowledge and education, but we're also really sodding fragile. You know, it takes one very little thing for us to break. And on really tough days, because life's still not a barrel of laughs all the time, I look back and I think I've gotten through so much crap, so much mess that, you know, I did it and I'm here, and I'm on the other side of it, and I know that it's going to take a lot to physically break me. It's not always easy, but I know that there's a strength that has, you know, they say diamonds are formed under pressure, but diamonds also, like, can explode when they're cut, so it's, it's that duality of knowing that you're on the fine line of being incredibly, incredibly strong, but also knowing that, like, it could also destroy you but my resilience is something that I really rely upon and it has manifested itself in very different ways it you know for example I don't rely on anyone for anything else in my life I'm very very self-reliant and I know it's it's like a self-assuredness I know I'll work out how to do something and I can do it and I have the strength to do it mm -hmm. that's how my resilience plays out in my life and that you know some people might call it character building. I say I was let down by all the adults in my life, but you know, it is a character part of me and I am proud of that resilience. Yeah, and I think, let's call it character building in a way, it is it makes it okay and that isn't okay. <laughs> it's not okay exactly. to have your needs ignored and to um, be abandoned by an education system. So it's... Yeah, it's um, and I especially when you mentioned rugby in PE, I think, oh God, I would do anything to get out of doing it because I would be chased whether I had the rugby ball or not. Like that's like they would yeah. just chase me, and it was, and yeah. that was I remember PE teachers 
they didn't call it character building but it was you know along those lines that well we all have to do things we don't like sometimes and it's not that I don't like it although I didn't but I'm I'm being abused like I don't that's why I don't want to do it um but it was yeah. just seen as well it's just part of life mm, actually, yeah no. for ages I just thought I was unhealthy and didn't like exercise and I was like hang on no no it was a human rights violation that's what it was every step was abuse and bullying I actually quite like exercise I have a spinning bike I love that so like it really phrases the education systems, the way things were set up when we were younger, almost wrote things off as like, well, this is just what children do. This is what you have to go through. Absolutely not. No, you don't. And I think we have to own up that we failed so many people through our education system. And come on, this is the UK where every child is allowed to go to school for free. We all have access. Like we have so much great stuff yet we're all being let down. So I, you know, I do think we have to sort of say, how bad is it elsewhere in the world? You know, where, you know, just being gay is still illegal in over 70 countries. How hard is school for children in those environments? So like as difficult as it is for us, I think sometimes when you've gone through it, then going, okay, it could have been this bad or it could have been like this it does help you move on with it I think and you know not we're not thankful but like we're just glad it's over (laughs) Mm, yeah and how much um did those experiences push you towards fashion I get I feel like there's a definite link there because you talked about you know seeing lots of queer people when you went to university and suddenly being surrounded by difference and that being a good thing and not a bad thing. So how much do you think those experiences or your identity led into fashion? So it's it's really um, unique for me that the education didn't do that for me. I, I remember I remember in my last year of sixth form, someone telling me about uni open days and I was like, what's that? And they were like, you know, UCAS. And I was like, who's she? I've, I've no idea. And it, it was like, I had no concept of higher education, university stuff. I was like, I didn't think we'd got there yet. So I like, I rushed, I thought, oh, I'll go and do drama. And then I did the open days and it was absolutely terrible. I hate it. So I just pulled out and then I just got a few different little jobs worked in retail. And I think having that space to actually find out who I was outside of education in systems where you are respected because you turn up and you do a job and you get paid. Um, it places a lot more importance on individuals. And that's when I realized what I actually wanted to do. And I did evening classes at colleges and did photography, Photoshop. And that's when I sort of realized that the stuff I was drawn to was very visual. And I, you know, I'd always had a very strong sense of how I wanted to dress. Once I got my own money, I just surrounded myself with shiny stuff. And I was just like, yeah. And so like, I was also very aware that I found it very easy to tell stories visually. You know, I'd seen that through visual merchandising in retail spaces and also a a few amounts of uh, sort of online work that I'd done. I'd made some YouTube videos for a brand and I was like, I'm good at it. How do I get better? Because, you know, when you just work in retail, you have to be like, yes, and, and you're not in control. And I thought, okay, what can I do? So I just, I went online and I just started to look and I found all these fashion communication courses. And I was like, I want to do that. You know, I was one of those people that saw the prospectus and was like completely sucked in. So I decided to like take a risk. I was like, I'm just going to go to these open days and see what I can do. And then I got there and they were like, 
yeah, most people do art um, A-levels and you'll have a portfolio. And I was like, I did psychology, biology. I've got no clue. Like I dropped out one of my A-levels. <laughs> and I was like, no, it's going to be fine. And I just like, I spent a summer making my own portfolio of work. Like I self-directed shoots, styling work, editorials. I interviewed people, wrote articles. And I went back to my interviews, got five unconditional offers. Like I was completely in control. And, you know, I, I do talk about this a lot when I speak to children, and I speak to education. Why do you think you need to do it all linearly, in a linear fashion? You don't need to, like, finish school, go to uni. Take some space to find out who you are, because no one knows, knows who they are in school. We're told who we are, and that person's not you. So actually, you know, moving into fashion, finding that was because I gave myself the space. And obviously I didn't plan it like that, but now I get to tell it as a gorgeous story and it makes a lot of sense. So now every chance I get, I've worked quite a few times with uh, the youth mental health service, Cooth, and they do a lot of things around um, exams and qualifications for students. Every time I work with them, I'm like, please take some time out to find out who you are. It's just something that I really drum back into people because, you know, you can, you can, you know, you could wake up at 91 and go, I'm going to change my life. The structures are there for you to do that. You don't have to do everything straight away. So like very much the message is take your time. And that time allowed me to find out who I was, I suppose. It primed me for the next five years of my life. And speaking about sort of the next few years of your life, tell me all about your upcoming book. (laughs) Oh, the book, the book, the book, the book. I am blown away. A a book is something that I always wanted to do. When I started my website, I was like, because that was around sort of 2016 when the influencer book thing was happening. They were sort of arriving and I was like, I want one of those. And obviously (laughs) I was like, well, that'll never happen. And now I'm writing one and it's really exciting to create the resources you know don't exist you know when you when I go into spaces and I educate on things I can see what hasn't been brought to people's attention before and now I'm in the position of power of putting that in a book and being able to say here's everything you don't know but what's really powerful about this moment is that It's written completely for the non-binary community. It's written for a non-binary reader. It, as a document, can totally be used for an ally. It can be used to learn the experiences of the community. And I, you know, through the book, I, I do say this is how it could be used, but I make no apology for the fact that it's written directly to a non-binary person because specifically in this section of the trans community there is nothing for us there is absolutely nothing for us the things that have been published are very personal memoirs which are incredible pieces of experience that we need to learn from but there's no what next moment there's no affirming nature of them and what this book is going to do that really sort of it challenges life right now for non-binary people and says this is why it's absolutely terrible this is why it's not your fault. And this is how we move on. And this is how we move on together. And um, yeah, I'm unbelievably proud of what the world will see. I'm thinking realistically and having spoken to my publishers, we're looking at summer 22 for this. That's exciting. <laughs> it is exciting. <laughs> and also it will be a, a huge, you know, fuck you to all the bullies and teachers who kind of belittled you, didn't believe in you failed you actually it's going to be a massive middle finger to them (laughs) so that must also feel pretty good (laughs) 
It does feel good. I haven't actually written the dedication yet. It's the last <laughs> thing I've got to do. And I, I'm tempted to be like, to anyone that ever bullies me, thanks so much. I don't know if I have the nerve to do it, but I think I do. I think I do have to acknowledge that this love and pleasure and passion came from pain. Mm. I think it's important. Yeah. Um. So that's it. But I have one question that I ask every guest, um, and it's a bit uh, RuPaul Drag Race ish, um, which I kind of didn't realize until I started asking it. I was like, oh, okay. and I've just You're basically copied it. Me, I'm doing it without the picture. So what? <laughs> but I don't like to pre-warn people, and I'm because it's nice to get responses. But um, yeah, what? Going back to ten-year-old Ben, what would you say to them? It, it's really difficult. What would I say to little me? Well, obviously, uh, you survive. You're still here. Um, you're 26. You're still very bitter. Um, but I guess it's going to pass, you know? You'll get to a point when you realise that other people's opinions mean nothing. And you don't even need other people's validation there'll there'll be a day where you wake up and you sort of realize that you're completely in control and that you get to write the rules and that no one can tell you to do anything ever again and that's going to feel incredible but you'll only be able to do that because you've had to suffer it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be Life's not going to be fun for a really long time and it'll take you a long time to learn to trust people again. But when you do, it'll be special. So just hold on. Yeah, hold on. Thank you, Ben, for joining me on When Did You Know? I hope you enjoyed the episode and keep on sharing it with your friends, family, work colleagues, anyone who you can get to listen. Um, It's really important that we keep sharing these conversations. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use and leave me a review on iTunes. It is honestly the best way to get more people listening to the show is to have a review on iTunes. So please take your time to do that. A huge thank you as well to Richard Abrahams for my theme music. And don't forget that you can follow me at wdykpod on instagram and twitter or email me on wdykpod at gmail.com with questions comments or to volunteer yourself for an interview until next time